Hi, and welcome to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. I'm Nina Wiklund. And I'm Daniela Irzamtosi. And together, we'll be exploring news, ideas, and developments in sleep and respiratory medicine. On Air is intended for healthcare professionals only. Hello, I would like to welcome Professor Lutger Gråte, Medical Director of the Sleep Disorders Center here at Sahlgrenska University Hospital in Gothenburg today. Uh, hi, Nina. Welcome here at our clinic. Really nice to have you here. You're extremely engaged in the sleep society, both here in Sweden and globally. It's very impressive. You're structuring and developing care through guideline groups. You're building research teams together with colleagues, both locally, nationally and internationally. And you often do uh, research work, often based on registries like ESADA, CSER and Svedevox. Thank you, Nina, for this credit. Thanks. There are an enormous number of themes that we could talk about today, but we will focus on something very specific. We will talk about the Swedish National Sleep Guidelines, published in December 2021 and described in a publication in the journal Diagnostics in March 2023. And in these guidelines, you launched a treatment matrix that goes beyond an isolated AHI in order to classify the severity of sleep apnea. So we will dig into this matrix today. Let's get reading the article. It's clear that this has been an extensive project. Would you like to give the listener some background to the goals of the sleep apnea working group that you have led? Actually, we started in 2010, a quality registry for sleep apnea care. And step-by-step, more and more centers started to to register their patients in this registry. And by that we saw in 2014, the first time really clearly that um, the way uh, diagnosis of sleep apnea is made is quite differently if you go to a sleep center in Northern Sweden or in South Sweden or in Gothenburg or in Stockholm. Despite the fact that we had good collaborations within Sweden, we we had never saw uh, the possibility to really work on national guidelines. But at that time point when we learn to work together in this quality registries, it's really a need for diagnostic guidelines. So we start in 2014 and were happy and able to publish the first diagnostic guidelines in 2018. And we were specialists from the different areas like ENT, pulmonary medicine, neurology, cardiology, neurophysiology, dentistry, different professions, and so really generated a very nice working group. And it's, of course, very obvious if you have national diagnostic guidelines, you need, of course, also national therapeutic guidelines. There's no doubt about that. And at the same time, there was an initiative on a national level to really drive this national knowledge-driven disease management, which in there were certain quality criteria for the working group So we extended our working group. Importantly, patient representatives were included. And we also wanted to have a more uh, distribution over the entire country. And with this group, we then wrote the therapeutic guidelines. This was finalized in December 2021. And the next project was to develop a management plan. So not only the knowledge and the evidence to make this clear to everyone, but also how to work most efficiently and to work as a healthcare profession with a patient-centered care. This management plan was then published in 23 in March. So we have altogether 
seven years program where we now have three important documents which then also have to be updated. For instance, our diagnostic guidelines from 2018, of course, have to be updated. But now it's the main work to see if those documents really make a difference. There we have our quality registry, CESA, the Swedish Sleep Acne Registry. And here we want to really monitor over time how disease management evolves and hopefully gets better uh, from a patient care perspective, means outcomes. But also we follow the diagnostic processes, the waiting times, the way diagnostic criteria are used and how treatment decisions are made. So it's really a holistic approach and we have a very good support from the government. A lot of enthusiastic people putting the data into the quality registries. For the listeners that have not been in the Sleep Society long, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the discussion around AHI as an isolated parameter being insufficient in order to classify the severity of OSA. That has been a debate for several years. Maybe you could explain to the listener why. It's quite interesting. You know, I think still the ASI has a very important value because it's really, you know, differentiating those who have no apneas and hypopneas from those who have some or those who have really many of them. So it's still, it's a frequency measure, but uh, we have learned throughout many years that this AHI is quite poorly correlated to patient symptomatology or to disease burden, or to treatment effects, for instance. And um, uh, But still, it's a measure to characterize sleep apnea. When we are looking into other disease areas, those objective measure of physiological variables uh, are still important to characterize a disease, but probably not no longer important for the management. For instance, if we think about COPD, There we have the lung function test to have an objective measure of a respiratory obstruction. This, you know, the FEV1 and the quote against the idle capacity. But this measure is no longer used for the management at all. It's for the disease definition, very important, but not for the management. And we have been trying now to still have the AHI in our thinking, but in, in a less prominent way like we had before. So the, re- the reason is the AHI is so weakly correlated to patients' problems and even outcomes and how we can modify their problems. So how did the process work when you and the guideline group uh, created this matrix to decide which parameters to take into account apart from AHI when you evaluate a patient? Yeah, this was a process um, which started in 2018, of course, when we were talking about treatment and treatment decisions. And I would say the idea that we need something beyond the AHI has been practiced not only in Sweden and in many, many countries, because everyone knows that the AHI alone is never, ever really valid parameters. But then the publication of the so-called Baveno classification, probably it's also not so far away from the COPD gold <laughs> classification, where you have symptoms on one axis and then complications like uh, yeah, controlled, well-controlled uh, comorbidities, or in the CBD case, it's exacerbations, yes, no. And this Baveno classification was a very nice way to emphasize how important it is to think beyond the AHI. And my colleague Jan Hitner and myself, we were in the Baveno group itself, 
but also the colleagues in our working group were really much influenced by these discussions. And then we thought, wow, in the Baveno, for instance, the AHI classification is, is not visible at all, but we are still thought, you know, that's so much in clinical practice to separate the event frequency that we thought, okay, it's important to still have it. And the, the next dimension was also age. We were, of course, influenced by the outcome studies saying that if you are elder, we took the cutoff of 65, but we write very clearly that this is not a really strict line of 65 or 66, but it's between 65 and 70, where the sleep apnea probably has less influence on survival at all. So we thought this dimension is really important also to have in this matrix. And our treatment decision matrix also have very vague categories that we say it's from uh, a very low likelihood of treatment recommendation to a very high treatment indication. So we have five different colors. It's not really a very distinct. It's more, you know, the red, uh, yellow, uh, green, like traffic lights. In now it's five different dimensions. But it, for us, it was a, a visualization of our thoughts and probably heavily influenced, of course, by the Baveno classification publication in 2018. You have AHI, you have H, and then you have two other yeah. parameters that are involved in the matrix. Of course, uh, it's symptomatology. And here we definitely say symptomatology is not the adverse scale 10 <laughs> cutoff. It's really we list daytime symptoms and nighttime symptoms, which we know are modifiable by treatment. For instance, nocturnal dyspnea, nocturia, fatigue, excessive daytime sleepiness, headache. So these are symptoms which has to be assessed. And if there is a clear correlation, or at least if the treating physician means that there is a high likelihood that a certain frequency of sleep apnea activity could be related to patient's symptoms, this is really the point where treatment decision um, should be made, which means we emphasize that it's so important to have a good patient history and to involve the patient much more and not to reduce symptomatology to simple questionnaire data. If you have well-controlled or uncontrolled cardiometabolic comorbidities, so it's mainly we think about hypertension, where we know that CPAP uh, or even oral device treatment or upper airway surgery can improve blood pressure control, but also it could improve lipid status, or it, even if the data are less strong, can improve uh, glycemic control in diabetics. If this is controlled or uncontrolled, it's a very important question. And again, we put it together with the age aspect. So it's a multi-layer treatment uh, decision matrix, which mainly should give the treating physician or caregiver the idea that we have to think about how can we modify patients' outcomes or patients' well-being with a treatment of sleep disorders breathing. Is sleep disorder breathing clinically relevant or not? By that, I, thought, I think our colleagues um, appreciate this approach, even if we are still quite vague we at least highlight current evidence. 
One theme that is discussed frequently at the ERS and other congresses is the hypoxic burden. What does it mean with hypoxic burden and why did you not bring this aspect into the Swedish treatment matrix? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, the hypoxic burden, what does it mean? It does mean that you look on the area under the curve of the entire desaturation event. So, And there are actually very several different methodologies out how you calculate it in detail. In our old sleep polysomnography and polygraphy world, we have this variable time below 90% saturation, which is probably part of the, the hypoxic burden in, in the more severe hypoxic area. So we are actually familiar with that. But then if you widen the perspective that you really want to measure it for all desaturations. Advantages that there are quite strong data that this hypoxic burden has better association with symptoms, but also with overall outcome like mortality, which is really, really strong. And therefore, I think there is something in it. However, when we designed our guidelines in 2020, this hypoxic burden was not available in diagnostic machines, <laughs> in the algorithms, although the, yeah, there is no standardization. We have no normal values. Uh, desaturation, a hypoxic burden of 2.2, what does this mean? <laughs> so we thought this hypoxic burden soup has to cook some more years that we get more, probably more knowledge about that. And it was absolutely not the time to put it already in our guidelines. Although they are very strong data, yes, but it's not um, translated to clinical routine yet. So um, through the Swedish Sleep Registry, you have access to a multitude of data every year. Uh, have you been able to already see any differences in 2021 uh, when the new treatment guidelines were implemented? We published it in December. So our first data we have now in 2022, and we are just compiling them. Our registry sample around 40,000 uh, patient visits per year, which is really nice. But we think we need two or three more years to really have a good comparative possibility. In 2020-21, we had the pandemic, which probably has also influenced um, patient care in for sleep apnea patients in a way. So I think we have we need some more time windows. So uh, of course, that's a main goal to look what happens. We saw for the diagnostic guidelines published in 2018, we saw that uh, we've got more and more aligned in our diagnostic procedures already in 2019 and 20. And we see it now, it, it really gets better and better and have a saturation on this improvement for 2021 and 2022. So I think we have to be a little bit patient two, three years to really evaluate that. But of course, highest priority and of course, a very important scientific question. If this new treatment matrix has outcome, you know, has better outcome for patients, I think we have to wait a couple of years because those outcomes in part will take some time to measure. But we have the tools now ready to really see if something makes sense or not. So to conclude what we've been talking about today, you have described the Swedish obstructive sleep apnea treatment matrix that came with the new guidelines and how the working group came up with this solution to classify the severity of OSA patients beyond the AHI. And uh, we have also highlighted the unique situation in Sweden with the multitude of Swedish registries, uh, giving the possibility to follow up these kind of guideline changes. If you as listeners would like to see a full presentation of the guidelines in English, you can go into ESRS webinar page. 
and watch the webinar Hot Topics in OSA from March 2023. Lusker holds a full presentation there. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Nina, for your interest. And I hope, uh, dear colleagues, that you find those arguments or discussions of interest. All the best. You've been listening to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. For new episode alerts and clinical updates, subscribe to our newsletter. <laughs>